Hi there, my name is Tim. And my name is Luke. And you are listening to the Recruitment Now podcast. We are passionate about recruiting. Each episode, we share ideas and insights into the world of recruiting from world-class recruiters and researchers. This podcast is for recruiters, HR professionals, and anyone looking to improve their recruitment abilities. Uh, welcome, Harrison, to our podcast here, to the Recruitment Now podcast. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So um, Harrison is a PhD student. He specializes in industrial and organizational psychology at the University of Calgary, and he's completing research in the Intergroup Relations Laboratory. Harrison holds a BA in psychology, a BA in archaeology, and recently completed his Master of Science in Experimental Social Psychology. He largely studies prejudice and discrimination towards newcomers, uh, refugees or immigrants in workplace contexts. And part of this podcast is uh, we want to hear from recruiters, but we also want to hear from researchers that have done work in this and what we can learn as recruiters and how we can improve ourselves. And Harrison is one of those researchers, which is why we brought him on here. So again, welcome, Harrison. Thank you very much for having me. So why don't we start and get you to uh, tell us a little bit about your research that you've done in your master's degree and realize there'll be more research coming out as you progress in your PhD, but tell us about some of your research. Sure. So as you mentioned, largely I study prejudice and discrimination. More specifically, I tend to research prejudice and discrimination towards newcomers in employment contexts, often focusing on refugees. So I've got a few different projects in this sphere. I've done qualitative work focusing on the barriers facing refugees when it comes to job interviews, uh, the job search process, uh, and job acquisition. So in this kind of project, I conducted interviews uh, with both privately sponsored ref Syrian refugees and service providers that work in refugee and immigration serving organizations in, in Calgary. Uh, so the objective of this project was really to explore what kind of barriers were, were facing these recent refugees in that job search and acquisition process. Uh, I've also done work, on the other hand, looking at hirers. Uh, so I've done some large-scale studies with American hirers where we looked at the role of intergroup contact. So basically that's, that's uh, having contact with people that are different than ourselves as a, a means to improve attitudes towards that, that kind of other group or that So different group. in what types of ways? You know, race. So it could have to do with ethnicity, race, religion, sexual orientation. In this case, uh, it had to do with immigration status, so, so refugees. So basically, the research literature suggests that if you have more contact with people that are different than you, especially if that contact is plentiful and of positive quality, it tends to improve your, your attitudes towards that group. Uh, in that same project, I looked at diversity training, so kind of the presence of diversity training or different kind of types of diversity training on these hires' attitudes, uh, hiring intentions, and behaviors um, towards refugees. So these were, were individuals that had the final authority to make hiring decisions in, the, in their place of work um, kind of throughout the United States. And then finally, within that same kind of project, I've looked a little bit at kind of the endorsement of exploitation of refugees among hirers. And I, I will kind of give the caveat that much of this research is hot off the press um, in the process of being written up or uh, being submitted to journals right now. But yeah, that's what, kind of... what was the main, the main or most impactful finding that, that you found through these multiple projects, what's that number one that sticks out to you? It would depend on the project specifically. I would say the qualitative work there from refugees' perspectives would be that they're really facing a lot of different barriers that other immigrant groups and lots of other individuals aren't necessarily facing or facing to different degrees. So that would be a big thing is, is refugees are a very diverse group. They're, they're um, very wide in terms of you know their, their language skills and their 
uh, credentials, um, their work experience. You've got just a, a plethora of, of experiences that these individuals have. So there's really no, it's, it's not, a cookie country, not a cookie cutter answer in, in getting these people in, employed. So just point of clarification, you're differentiating between refugees and immigrants in terms yeah. of their experiences. Why, why would it be different? Sure. So refugees, I, I kind of broadly defined as individuals that are forced to flee their home country due to persecution relating to some element of their kind of social status, usually. Uh, so again, that could be their religion, it could be their sexual orientation, it could be, you know, their political affiliation, their ethnicity, skin color, things, things like that. So those are individuals that are forced to flee their country, often with, with little warning. They end up in another country in a refugee camp for a number of years before, often for, for years or at least kind of extended months before they get offers to go to different countries that they really might not have that much experience with. That differs from immigrants in general, because immigrants that, at least immigrant Canada in the States, uh, it, it tends to be a very well-planned event. So these are individuals that, you know, have perhaps have work already lined up, they usually have the English skills um, already established, they've got social networks that, that are helping them that exist to, to kind of find work, they've got the social networks in terms of their family, like they're doing quite quite well. Refugees kind of come into the country without having a lot of experience knowing what, what it's like to be in Canada or find a job in, in Canada. So from an employer's perspective, you know, why would that employer consciously or unconsciously treat them those two groups differently? Well, sometimes it's difficult for them to know one or the other, but sometimes it could have to do with language issues. Perhaps that individual might be highly qualified. You know, I've, I've done interviews with doctors, with uh, you know, lawyers, with accountants, with the highly skilled individuals that might not have the English skills that are there, which they might get treated differently there. Sometimes immigrants, you know, hires and other people or organizations have already had contact with them, experience with them, they little know a little bit more about them. And I think there's kind of some stigma towards refugees and, and you kind of think of the global scope in Canada, there's lots of discussions about immigration and yeah. should we be accepting refugees and, and such. Well, we have an election coming up in October and that's a issue in the election. I don't know if it's a prime issue, but it is definitely a issue. So why did you want to study this? Like, you know, sometimes research chooses you, but you chose this. Why, why did you go this route? Sure. So I kind of began this line of research in 2013 or 2014, given the salience of the Syrian refugee crisis um, and the displacement of, there were 6 million or between 6 and 7 million Syrian refugees that were forced to flee the country. Uh, in total, another 6 or 7 million that were internally displaced. How many came to Canada? Do you know uh, there's there? about 40,000 that yeah. came into Canada uh, oh, in 2014, 2015. In terms of kind of general numbers for refugees, so there have been about 100,000 refugees that have entered Canada between 2015 and 2017. And in the States, about 350,000 that have entered the U.S. between 2014 and 2018, although that's declined quite a bit with, with Trump. But So this group was largely understudied in terms of psychological literature, especially in workplace contexts. And I felt like it was an important group to be studying, given those ongoing discussions regarding immigration. As someone who studies prejudice and discrimination, it was an interesting group to study because they were so diverse. And I had a little bit personally invested in it too, that I've got an aunt who actually arrived in Canada in the early 80s from Laos as a refugee. So we've always kind of had those connections. I thought they would be a, a valuable, valuable area of study for sure. I certainly think this is a really re uh, relevant topic specifically in recruitment because not only in Canada, we, in Canada are we culturally open to uh, hiring immigrants, but also taking on refugees. 
Um, and I think that a lot of people in a recruitment function, they really want to do a better job of hiring more diversely, but they just don't necessarily have the tools. So at least knowing that this is actually a thing, that's, that's you know, awareness is step one. What part of your research do you think you could share with um, people who are in recruitment functions at organizations or hiring leaders? What could they learn from it and how could they apply that to improve their ability to hire more diversely and actually provide some gainful employment for refugees to start integrating into society? Sure. Well, maybe I'll, I'll kind of lay out a few of those main barriers that I've kind of found through my research, and then we can touch on a little bit about what recruiters and employers can kind of do. So kind of some of those main barriers that tend to be facing refugees, the first one tends to be language issues. So sometimes it's insufficient for the job acquisition. Uh, and some of those refugees are waiting very long periods for classes. It could be 10 months before they actually get into an English class. But you have that extreme variability in English skills, too. You've got some refugees that arrive that are ready to to get into the workplace right then and other ones you know it's going to be a little bit of a delay before they can really begin contributing the way that even a job search they couldn't start until they've learned either english or french in canada yeah exactly yeah. and and some of them you know are, are very experienced i've got I've, I've interviewed syrian refugees who are like pharmaceutical reps and have traveled all over europe and and asia and stuff and being able to do that um, and then you get other ones that you know really haven't had a computer and aren't really familiar with that job search process so kind of being understanding in that element is uh, important there are credential issues that tend to arise so refugees' credentials are often unavailable, potentially because their their core country is war torn, the university gone, or you know they're exiled from the country for whatever reason, and they can't get you know get their designations kind of back or or, or like proof that when, you know I'm going a back to what you said earlier else. too. It's often abrupt, whereas an immigrant exactly. might have planned for this. A refugee, they might mm. not have planned. So, I mean, I don't carry around my diplomas with me everywhere I go. So exactly. It could have been abrupt. Uh, in some situations, it becomes kind of unassessed, like they, they don't have their credentials assessed, or it's unrecognized by employers in, in Canada, or it's not trusted. Perhaps it's even a matter of, yeah, I've got this credential, and I've actually had it assessed, and they say it's okay. But you will have, still find some situations where, you know, recruiters or hires might be less trustworthy of, of, They're biased. of those. They can They're be, biased. absolutely. Yeah. That's definitely one one issue. And sometimes refugees or even employers don't actually know how to bridge those credentials. Maybe it is just a couple steps for that employer to to get, you know, a very valuable um, potential employee that's got tons of experience, but they don't really know how to bridge those credentials, those little kind of gaps to, to make them take that step into to the workplace. So, so far you've got language, technology, yep. and lastly, the credentials. Is, is there anything else? Uh, I'd say Canadian experience is a big one. There's lots of refugees that really need an opportunity to, to build some Canadian experience. And, you know, there's lots of employers recruiters that are looking for you having, you know, a certain number of years experience in working in Canada. But it's a bit of a catch-22 when I speak to refugees and, and service providers is that uh, they don't have the requested Canadian experience to, to get their desired job, but they also face a situation where they can't build that Canadian experience because they aren't getting that job. So mm -hmm. some of those people just need that that little bit of help to begin with there. There's other little things that, that occur in, in terms of like interviews or, or meetings, in terms of like culture incongruencies. Sometimes there's a lack of familiarity with, you know, the job application process or the interview process. Things happen differently, potentially, if you're a Syrian refugee. Uh, in Syria than, um, you know, what happens in Canada and the United States. Sometimes there's soft skills that are different in terms of, you know, handshaking is uncommon in some cultures or mm -hmm. avoiding eye contact, something that, you know, we value a lot. 
uh, when you're kind of initiating this relationship elsewhere, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, there's a little bit of exploitation that definitely does occur. That you do have certain it's it's a limited number of them, but there are certain employers that will try to take advantage of these individuals, and some of that stems from a refugee's lack of knowledge about kind of their workplace rights, or um, sometimes they're kind of forced into that due to kind of financial need. Let's talk about the Canadian experience. I've, mm-hmm. I've pondered this in you know past lives as a recruiter too. Do you think it's kind of irrational on employers' end to value that Canadian experience? I, I think you have to look at experience more broadly. I think they, okay. they, it would be good to be more accepting of, of international experience. Some of the people that I've talked to have, have, have had amazing international experience. Like I said, you know, the pharmaceutical rep who's also a doctor that's traveled between like the UK and elsewhere in Europe and then gone to Dubai and, you know, done all this, this kind of work that I think that is certainly extremely valuable experience that gets it if it does get valued it gets valued less um, than probably it deserves in a lot of cases now what would you say if I'm a recruiter and I see there's somebody applying for a job and I can tell that their let's say English abilities are lacking and that's a deal breaker for the job what what should I be doing differently to try to see a potential match because this person has the experience, they have the skills, everything else looks like it's good. But from the language front, I know it's not going to work out. What what could you share with me? Do I change my mindset? Are there tools? Are there programs? What should I be doing as a recruiter if this is really the skill set I want, but I know that there's the, the language barrier? Uh, I would really encourage those recruiters to get involved with some of the local immigration organizations. There, there's some really great ones. For instance, in Calgary, you've got CCIS, the Calgary Catholic Immigration Society. It's the second largest immigration organization in, in Canada. Uh, and they've got lots of really fantastic programs that kind of help partner refugees and I- other immigrants uh, with employers and getting involved in that way and, and trying to like help help bridge that gap. Perhaps they can get them involved in English classes sooner. Um, maybe it's a matter of the, the uh, doing a little bit of volunteer work, perhaps, with that organization where you build English skills. Because workplace is really a good place for these individuals to build those English skills quite quickly. There's also some interesting programs that CCIS has, has um, used in the past, and I'm sure they will kind of continue to do in the future, where they subsidize part of the, the refugees pay to kind of get some work experience with there. So the employer is taking less of a risk. It's kind of a, mm-hmm. a part-time temporary contract. You know, it's, you know, it's eight weeks or it's 13 weeks or it's a few months. And hopefully that gives that, you know, that refugee an opportunity to build their English skills and, and kind of, you know, show the employer that, hey, I, c- I can definitely do this. And at the end of that contract, then hopefully, you know, there's, there's a match that, that can occur there and that they get hired full yeah. on. Yeah. And what about technology when, when refugees do come in and they haven't, let's say the easy one is uh, experience with using a computer, which here it doesn't matter what kind of job unless it's really manual labor or if you're driving a truck, you pretty much need the skills to work with a computer. So how do recruiters again, how do they approach that? Do they also work with these kinds of societies where they can access people who've been trained up? Or is there a way for them to reduce their risk and provide this Canadian experience for people? Is there a government grant? Do you know of anything like that? I've heard of something like that where you can actually get some funding to pay for upskilling employees. Uh, I'm sure that exists. I'm, I don't know that about that any specific grants off the top of my head. Um, again, there are computer classes with a lot of these these partnering organizations that that you know refugees can often go through this program. 
um, and they, they work on their, their resumes, their, their interviews, their computer skills, you know, and uh, sometimes there's mentorship programs that end up occurring and then they end up in that kind of work experience. So that would be something I would be talking to the, the immigration organization about because they've, they've got lots of refugees in lots of different places and maybe the organization only wants them, you know, after they've gone through yeah. this program, but maybe that's a prerequisite to getting them in or maybe that's saying to the refugee, hey, there's this great program here, we'd love to have you go ahead, you know, work on that program, you know, do do this for your English skills or do this for your computer skills and then, you know, come back to us. I'm really inquisitive because you've spoken with so many people with hiring, they're hiring decision makers mm -hmm. all across North America, but you mentioned something like 400. Were there any of these organizations that through your research have started something or, or joined the force to provide opportunities for refugees to get that work experience, the local work experience, even if it's not to hire them, but just to give them the opportunity to get started in the market? Uh, so for my studies with the hires in, in that perspective, we didn't actually get into that kind of qualitative information from there. Lots of that had to do with how much contact hires had had with refugees. Um, so like, did they have contact with them at work, at home, as neighbors? Was that quali contact quality positive? And then we kind of looked at how that impacted their empathy towards refugees, as well as uh, another factor in psychology that we call intergroup anxiety. So this is basically a factor that when you interact with people that are different than yourself, uh, you tend to feel kind of anxious when you're, you're interacting with them for the first time or even the first few times. And not only is this kind of self-reported anxiety, but they've done research that actually shows that people feel physiological anxiety uh, when they meet perhaps like a refugee when they haven't had experience meeting refugees in the past. Uh, and if people haven't had that contact, there's more of a tendency to hold more negative attitudes towards them, hiring attitudes, hiring intentions, less hiring behavior towards them. Same thing with diversity training. If people have had more diversity training, people tend to feel more empathy towards these refugees, which in turn improve their attitudes and, and kind of it trickles down in terms of hiring for these individuals. So that's kind of the perspective we were looking at there. We didn't really get into the accomplishments that specific hires yeah. may have had within the United States. It was more a broad level kind of quantitative research. In so that, that is case. diversity training something that's is that something widely available? Is that something companies are doing now? About 70% of the organizations in the United States utilize some form of diversity training, although a lot of it is unevaluated. So I think it's important perhaps for, for organizations and, and recruiters to go through diversity training, but not just any diversity training. I would look for programs that have evidence that they have actually worked. Don't just look for kind of self-reported, oh yeah, I, I did diversity training, I checked my box, it was a half a day, I enjoyed it, it was fine. I would look for the diversity trainings that have um, evidence that they've actually changed people's behaviors, that has actually changed their attitudes, ones that have been evaluated, like did you build more knowledge about how it is to interact with like a refugee or someone of different ethnicity or someone with a different sexual orientation. A real test would be see is up to see after that if the if the amount of people who are refugees or uh, less visible minorities got hired after that training, that would be the ultimate test of whether that kind one of training worked. One worked. of the problems, and Harrison kind of alluded to it, is a lot of HR departments measure activity, not outcomes. So the activity being, okay, we have a thousand employees and nine hundred and ninety-eight of them took the diversity training. We'll check that box. Mm -hmm. We're good now. Let's move on to something more important. Is their perspective versus we did the training but did anything change afterwards? And if it didn't change, well, you just wasted a bunch of money. 
uh, okay. doing that training. And I think a lot of those and consultants, you know, possibly who are listening to this have probably made a lot of money <laughs> delivering training yeah. that doesn't work. Well, exactly. It's, it's in the States, it, it's, it's a $9 billion industry yep. that people have done diversity training and, and most of it isn't evaluated. Yep. Um, Wait, diversity training as an industry on its own is worth $9 billion. Yep. Wow. Massive. A massive industry and, and only growing more organizations are, are kind of doing that they've got the social responsibility to try to kind of get involved in, in using those programs but I would definitely be looking to some of the literature that exists out there in terms of only now in the last probably five or ten years have people really begun to start evaluating diversity training programs and same thing in terms of kind of the psychological literature there's a couple of big studies that have only come out in the last couple of years that are kind of trying to evaluate you know, what does diversity training look like and which ones are going to work a little bit better? There's there's a couple big meta-analyses or studies of lots of different studies that have suggested, that, you know, if you do training that's, you know, longer durations, like longer than four hours seems to be important. The longer they are, perhaps better. If they're distributed over a whole bunch of different days, it tends to be more positive kind of factors along those lines. They're, they've even delved into, um, you know, who's leading the training, what are the trainee group made up of, what what can you do to make these kind of more effective, and how does that affect kind of outcomes that relate to knowledge or actual behavior in hiring or actual attitudes towards different groups. So, you know, you've done all this research here, and, you know, I'm sure one recommendation is diversity training, good diversity training, but to somebody who's listening to this who says, hey, I'd love to do a better job of this, you know, in terms of interacting with newcomers to Canada, you know, in my recruitment practices, based on your research, what would you tell them? Like, what are some tangible, practical things they could do? So I would say, you know, try to push yourself through that anxiety of having an interaction with someone that's different than yourself, because intergroup contact, especially if it's positive quality contact, seems to indicate that it's got the strongest effect on kind of your attitudes and hiring attitudes, hiring intentions towards these groups. So if you can have an actual interaction where, you know, you're cooperative with someone who's different than yourself, you're in a context, if you're in a workplace that is, is supportive of that, that seems to be an important factor in terms of whether contact works or not. So yeah, I would encourage people to have that contact. And it doesn't have to be just be at work. Work is a good place to maybe start. But, you know, if it's your neighbor, or maybe it's someone else in the community that just having that general contact seems to kind of bleed through to other areas that, that impact hiring kind of more broadly. Um, so I'd say definitely that's an important factor. I'd also suggest, again, people hooking up with, with uh, immigrant-serving organizations and seeing how they can get involved there or how their organization um, can benefit from, from kind of having this kind of diverse number of employees. And, and I'd encourage that diversity within your own or, within your own organization. So maybe that's working groups that are made up of people that are, are different and have different backgrounds and different perspectives. Um, that can be really important. And I encourage them looking into some kind of existing services like World Education Services is a, like an online platform uh, which allows for like credential recognition and comparison kind of to a refugee or an immigrant's um, experience. And then it'll give you kind of a comparison to what that standard is in the United States or in Canada. That can be a good place to, to start and kind of really evaluate whether it's a good fit or not. Um, they've got some gateway programs that are interesting that kind of help evaluate and assess those educational uh, or the education of individuals who are displaced by political unrest and conflict. And even in cases where those documents are unverifiable, you can't actually get them. Um, and that tends to be uh, a very reliable kind of source. Okay. 
Yeah, no, WES, I think is the name. Yep. They're used also for mm-hmm. people who want to immigrate to verify the education. It's interesting that you, you say that uh, even refugees need Canadian work experience to get the next job. It's a bit of a catch-22. We recently were approached by a refugee who wrote to me personally and said, I'm, I am a refugee. I need Canadian work experience to get the job I want, which is X, Y, and Z. In the meantime, I'll do anything and I'll help you for nothing. And that kind of attitude, I think, it goes a long way. And so we actually have... Uh, this person on our team, and we realize that it's a it's a different mode of operation. It's um, there's some language barriers that we have to work through, but we've actually taken it on as a bit of a, a task to give back to society and also help somebody to get connected. And you know, this person joins us at networking events, so not only only are they brushing up on their technical skills, they're brushing up on English, but also getting the opportunity to network. And we hope that that enables this person to then get an actual paying job in, you know, and contributing to the economy that way. So I think that that's, you know, take a step out there if if you're a refugee in that position, even with broken English, try and reach out. And I think people, we're human, right? And we're willing to help. So... Yeah, no, that's 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 a it's a good story, and that's that's something that I think a lot of refugees are, are seeking kind of opportunities to you know they they want to give back to the country that you know has has given them a safe place to live. Um, you know, these were you know very productive members of society in whatever country that they came from, and it just happens to be the circumstances that they've come here. And there's lots of opportunities I think for organizations to take what is perceived as a little bit of a risk to you know give them a chance to you know work alongside people in that that industry or, or build their English skills that well that that way or yeah I, I think that's a that's an important factor because some of these individuals really have you know decades of experience and and it can be very quick to actually get them back into being a very important contributing member of, of Canadian society I think one of the benefits for organizations too is it broadens their talent pool when you're recruiting for positions you have a limited talent pool of when you when you add all the restrictions in and often your competitors are looking at the exact same talent pool, which then drives salaries up. But if you can look aside, maybe refugees are an untapped resource. And you, you know, if you don't know any using your intergroup contact theory, you might know not, you might assume a lot of things like they're uneducated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But using your example, the gentleman with a who is a, a doctor, you said, uh, and a pharmaceutical rep. Here's a very educated person with a ton of experience, traveled all over the globe. Somebody with that level of experience would be really valuable to a company. Yeah, that's well. a gold candidate. Like that's somebody like in, I could think of you know a dozen different positions that somebody with that experience would be great in. So, and you know a lot of companies might not look at them, but if you do look at them, you might find a gem that could be completely valuable to your company as well. I mean, there's so so many of them. For instance, there's another one that was he was a CEO of a bank in wow. in Syria, you know, wow. working part time as a bank teller here now. Like wow. that's uh, that's the level of experience that is there. It's, there's and there's a huge kind of swath of, of, of kind of how diverse refugees are. You get some individuals that, yes, they don't have the, you know, the English skills and they don't have the, you know, the education, but there's lots of places that they can fit in that are, are very productive as well. For instance, there's some individuals that, you know, might not have lived in a big city, but, you know, if they are in a farming community, they've got lots of experience in working with animals and, and, and being in different places than just the big centers too. So I think there's a place for everybody as just kind of helping those people get to those places. Now, you, you touched on it a little bit, but how does, how does your research relate to broader issues of prejudice and discrimination in the workplace? 
Sure. So generally in prejudice and discrimination, we talk about it in kind of two main areas. And the first one is overt prejudice and discrimination, which does still occur in workplaces. So, something so give, very, give me an example of that. Uh, it's like, I'm not going to hire this individual out loud because he's a refugee, because he's black, because he's gay, okay. because it's whatever. Okay. Um, and and it, it's certainly gone down over over the last decades. Uh, like it's improved, but it still occurs, and and people will still use that. And my research into attitudes towards refugees fits a little bit into that category. But a lot of prejudice and discrimination has moved to more kind of subtle subtle ways, which can be difficult to identify. Uh, for instance, it might be impossible for a refugee to be able to know whether they're being discriminated against when uh, a hire gets their job application says yes or no, or I'm going to consider them or not going to consider them. There can certainly be subtle, subtle things going on there. Um, and you can have some employers or hiring managers that will profess egalitarian or positive views towards disadvantaged groups. They'll even deny any discriminatory kind of behavior, but they continue to behave in a way that's in a different manner towards those disadvantaged groups. And, and this has largely been studied um, in the literature, literature in terms of like ethnicity and race. But for listeners that are interested, it's referred to as rever- uh, aversive racism, which is a, a big area of, of research. So basically, it's holding those kind of um, positive views externally to everyone else in kind of a politically correct manner, but behaving in a way that's counter to that. So that's kind so of what my research is. It might be racist, but I'll never... Admit it. Say it, admit it, or say something it's, that might label me as a racist. Often, often it yeah. gets being discussed as you're the person who says, uh, I'm not racist, but, and then you make excuses for, mm-hmm. you know, not hiring the refugee with lots of experience or, or not doing this. And that tends to come out in more ambiguous situations. Uh, I know some of the research in that suggests that if you've got really highly qualified candidates, regardless of their background, people tend to hire them. And if there's people that are, you know, really not qualified, they don't tend to get hired. Um, whether you're locally born or whether you're, you know, an immigrant or whether you're white or black or whichever kind of in-group or out-group you're looking at. But it's in those situations that it's more ambiguous, that this more subtle discrimination tends to come out. And that's kind of my my area of interest. Awesome. I don't have anything to add. No, I think this is really interesting, Harrison. And I think you know, your, your comments and we look forward to seeing more research coming from you over the next couple of years. And You've got a journey ahead of you with your doctorate. Yeah, maybe tell us what it is that you're working on yeah. next. So I've got a couple big studies that I'm, I'm looking at in terms of the impact of social norms and on how that influences people's attitudes towards uh, newcomers. So if people read that people are very accepting towards um, you know, newcomers in a kind of like mock, uh, mock newspaper articles, things, things that they, they think are real, um, they tend to have more positive attitudes towards those individuals. If they read something else that suggests that, no, you know, they're not integrating well and, you know, we don't really want to help them all that much, it seems to change people's attitudes and, and perhaps behaviors towards those individuals as well. So we're a product of our environments and the media certainly has a role to play. Certainly it does. There, it's, a, it's a complex kind of thing. There are individual differences that, that certainly uh, play a role. That's some research that I've got into, like who is specifically doing the most discrimination and who holds those negative attitudes and, and such. That's, that's definitely another area that I'm, I'm very much interested in. Well, I do think there's definitely a relation to recruitment. When companies look at, we want to improve this, inevitably they're going to look at the recruitment processes. You know, if they say, you know, we want more diversity in our executive team, well, to fix that, you have to look at your recruitment processes at some point into the organization, including at the executive level. So recruitment will definitely be integrated into the work you do down the road. And we definitely have a lot of work to do in the recruitment industry in this in this oh, yeah. area to look at our, our biases, to look at our practices and hopefully improve there. 
But uh, thank you so much, Harrison. Again, I look forward to reading your research down the road in different journals and uh, different venues. It's going to be exciting to read that and say, well, we had him on our podcast when he becomes famous. Yeah, exactly. He's on these big stages down the road. Well, thank you so much and uh, good luck in your uh, doctoral program going forward. Thank you very much for having me on.